from WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, author Steve Phillips joins me to discuss his latest book, Brown is the New White. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Whenever a political party loses the general election, it is natural that they reflect on what exactly went wrong. Republicans did this in the aftermath of the 2012 election, citing the need to be a party that appeals to a much larger swath of the American electorate. Democrats now find themselves in a similar situation after President Donald Trump's victory over Hillary Clinton. Many suggest the party must move more to the center to attract working-class white voters. But my guest, Steve Phillips, in his latest book, Brown is the New White, which is now out in paperback, offers this is the wrong direction. With the use of data, Phillips contends the Democratic Party fortunes rest with attracting more people of color and progressive white voters. Phillips is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Steve Phillips, welcome back to the Public Rally. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. You know, now that um, your book, Brown is the New White, is in paperback, uh, what do you know now that you did not know when you began this project? Well, sadly, I think we know what we, well, what I know now is that the difficulty of changing the conventional wisdom within democratic and progressive politics is greater than I had um, anticipated. Um, and so a lot of, you know, much of the reason for writing the book in the first place was to really sound the alarm is that I did not believe that uh, Democrats and progressive leaders properly understood how Obama had gotten elected and reelected, and they were not on the course to build on those um, strengths. And sadly, that is what came to pass in terms of abandoning the course that was, had been successful and um, resulting in the current uh, political debacle we're facing in the country today. You know, as I was preparing uh, for this interview, I, 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 I think you were at the Commonwealth Club, and I, I saw that on YouTube, and you actually made the statement that you assumed everybody knew this. It just seemed, it, it, to me, particularly for myself, having come of age, you know, in the Rainbow Coalition and the 80s and how that campaign was both intimately uh, intertwined with the energy of the civil rights movement and then significantly successful, right, going from uh, um, 400 delegates in 84 to 1,200 delegates in 88 to uh, 3.5 million votes in 84 to 7 million votes in 88, that this seemed to be a trajectory, and then Obama was the culmination of that as more people of color as the Rainbow Coalition got lar- larger and stronger, propelled him to the White House, um, and then kept him in the White House with five million fewer white votes in 2012. So it just seemed logically we would double down on that constituency, particularly given that that's where the growth in the population is. But there was a reticence and a failure to appreciate that on the uh, Democratic side. 
and now we are where we are. Now, the last time you were on The Public Morality was right on the heels of you, you writing a New York Times piece um, in uh, post-mortem of the Trump election. And um, I asked you if you thought the emergence of Barack Obama in some ways created an arrested development uh, in that uh, there were uh, fewer voters, fewer people who voted uh, for Clinton that were part of that Obama coalition. And I wonder, how do you see it in the present moment? Well, yeah, no, I think, well, for one, I think it's imperative. imperative the single greatest lesson that I'm trying to uh, convey through this second edition of the book and my other writing is that uh, Trump did not and does not represent the majority of people. He did not get a majority of the electorate. He did not even get a majority in the states that gave him the Electoral College. He was under 50% in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida. And so it's very important to understand that in terms of figuring out the strategy and tactics going forward. And so, you know, yes, they could have always invested more in the Obama coalition, and I wish that they had. But even more importantly now is what are we doing today? And that where do we see the growth and where are the pillars of progressive strength? And that the wise course of action is not to be trying to figure out how to change the minds of people who have gravitated towards Trump and his xenophobic and, and, and racist messages, but it's how do we re-inspire and re-consolidate the Obama forces and the Obama coalition. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the presidential candidates this century, uh, with the exception of Barack Obama, you had Al Gore, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton. In terms of style and campaign methodology, it, it would seem to me that in that lineup, Obama's clearly the outlier. So, I could see the contrarian saying to you, but trying to pull together the Obama coalition the way Obama did it is akin to the Chicago Bulls waiting for the reemergence of Michael Jordan. Yeah, well, that that line of thinking is really what um, motivated me to write the book. Because people kept thinking that this was this uh, singular historical, I mean, obviously historical, but a singular unreplicatable. Uh, dynamic. You have this once-in-a-lifetime figure comes along, etc. That's actually not what happened. Is that Obama, I mean, he's from Hawaii, right? he's a surfer, and so he was able to surf the waves of demographic change in this country in a way that others failed to do. But it wasn't ultimately about the surfers, about the wave. And so that wave is continuing to transform the composition of the country. And every single day, there are 7,000 people of color added to the population versus 1,000 whites, right? births, deaths, and legal immigration. And so this is an irreversible trend. The, the composition of the country, which is comprised of people of color, is growing inexorably. And there is a consistent, uh, meaningful minority of progressive whites. That is the majority of people in the country. And that's not about the person at the top of the ticket. That's the coalition that puts people at the top of the ticket and into the White House. Now, now it's estimated, I believe, around 2040, America's slated to be a majority-minority country. Now, I'm wondering how many uh, minor, minority-majority states are there currently? Uh, well, to, well, to that specific thing, I think it's three or four. Right? So Hawaii, Texas, California... Um, I think of the three, and then you have like Arizona and Georgia trending um, in that direction. But what I try to make uh, clear is that um, 
it's not just about a majority-minority issue. It's that it's critically important. There is not a progressive majority without progressive whites. Now, progressive whites cannot be part of a majority without people of color. But together, that's what I call the new American majority. And so it's not about waiting towards 2040, where then all whites will be endangered. It's about taking the, that 35 to 40 percent of whites who are you know, consistently progressive, allying them with the overwhelming majority of people of color, and taking back power and trying to move towards uh, justice and equality in the country. I, I know you're an author, and it's not your job to be Notre Dame, but you know, it's just struck me that one of the states you included in that ma- uh, majority-minority list was Texas, that has been ruby-red for decades. So I guess I'm asking you, is this the year Texas becomes at least purple? Well, it's, cert- it's moving in that direction. And so the uh, Democrats used to lose in Texas by about, you know, 1.2, 1.5 million votes. Um, Clinton lost by 800,000 votes. So it's clearly moving in that direction. But the larger point is that, so yes, Clinton lost by 800,000 votes in Texas. There were 4 million eligible non-voting people of color in Texas in 2016, 3 million of those Latino. So they, Texas has the numbers right now to be a completely different political population, but it doesn't have the voter participation rates. And so that, and it gets back to the question on what is the progressive priority at this point in time? Is it maximizing the voter participation of people of color and Latinos in particular in a place like Texas, or is it trying to figure out how to woo and change the minds of Trump voters in West Virginia? Now, one of the common refrains that we hear, uh, and I'll just I'll just pick uh, some of the voices that I've heard here in North Carolina uh, on Black Lives Matter. I'll just use that as an example. And the and you you hear, well, Democrats take our votes for granted, and they're not concerned with our issues. So, what would be, quote unquote, our issues? Well, first and foremost is the economic. Uh, equality and the wealth gap and the racial wealth gap in this country, right? And that the average black and Latino family has about $11,000 in assets and net worth. The average white family has about $140,000. And so that's the fundamental. And then that translates to all the other ills within our society in terms of quality of education, the funding base for education, in terms of housing opportunities, in terms of ultimately issues of crime, lack of opportunity. And that economic wealth gap is a consequence of the history of public policy within this country. I, mean, I say in that book, is when has America not had a racial wealth gap? From the moment in 1607 that the English settlers arrived and took the land and brought over Africans to mine the land, and to work the land, that there has been a racial wealth gap in this country. It was legal to racially discriminate in hiring, in funding, in promoting, in, in business, all the way up until 1964. And so this whole, this reality that we're facing in terms of inequality is very much tied to a public policy tradition. And our, our current elected officials, people aspiring for leadership, addressing that issue um, as the single most salient challenge facing the country. Well, I know one of the issues you raise, um, I, I believe it was Chapter 7, that you, you, you raise it, and you talked about the GI Bill, which is largely touted as really transform, transforming the American economy. But there were some significant problems with that, addressing some of the things you just talked about. 
Exactly. And so the, and it's, also, it's fascinating how little there's known about and how difficult it was to even get information about the, the GI Bill and how it actually functioned. And so this is what, more than anything else within the really history of this country, people say, oh, well, I didn't own slaves or whatever. So let's even just put slavery aside for a moment. More than almost anything else, the racial wealth gap in this country is tied to the implementation of the GI Bill in the, the 20th century, where essentially the government took billions of dollars and gave it to white people and did not give it to people of color. And that's what created the modern uh, American middle class. They supported home ownership, uh, which became the primary wealth driver. But then there was redlining and, and, and lack of uh, loans being made to uh, communities of color. The uh, New Deal explicitly excluded domestic workers and farm workers from its protections and benefits. So these were public policy decisions which were giving, handing money to white people that then propelled the creation of the modern uh, uh, middle class within this country. So it's a critical component, and the only way we're going to reverse that is not through the incremental aspiration that there will be you know, greater economic improvement. It's going to take massive public policy investment uh, in the way that to redress the inequality in the same way that massive public policy investments created it. And for, and for those listening, um, what you're talking about, uh, as I understand it, is some of the implementation. Like, for example, if you lived in certain areas, there were just places you could not buy a home if you were a person of color or, or so on and so forth. Is that what? Yes. There, there are government documents from the 40s and 50s laying out the explicit policies. The government guaranteed home loans after World War II. So people could actually buy homes and start to create uh, wealth and generate equity and the value of the homes um, would increase. And that's how wealth is largely created for many families in this country. There are documents saying that one of the primary factors to look at to whether or not to guarantee a loan was the racial composition of the neighborhood. And these, these are official government documents that un- they were underpinning the uh, redlining um, of that whole period in time, which led to different family like from even I talk in the book about my own family. I grew up um, in you know Cleveland Heights, Ohio, in 1964. My parents could not buy a home in our neighborhood in the suburbs um, because they were black, and they had to go get a white civil rights lawyer to then buy that home and then deed it over to us. And that was the way we actually got into that home which actually uh, accumulated in value, right? That home grew, uh, uh, tripled in its value and its equity, whereas a few miles away where my grandparents lived in the inner city, that home only increased in value by $3,000 in the same period of time. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Steve Phillips, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress, about his latest book, Brown is the New White, which is now out uh, in paperback. Uh, when you wrote this book, there was not a 2016 election yet. So do, do, do you feel like Notre Dame is in a way? <laughs> well, I wish I didn't. Right? <laughs> but I was trying to warn progressives and Democrats that we ignored inspiring, investing in, and mobilizing voters of color at our peril. And... So what you wind up have happening, I wrote actually a piece in The Nation in, in uh, June of 2016 saying our black voters invisible to the Democratic Party. 
So at that time, the independent groups had outlined their plans for political spending, the Priorities USA and these other, you know, large super PAC groups. And of the $200 million of spending that they had articulated, what they were going to spend it on, there was $0 allocated for black voter mobilization, zero. There was a little bit for black radio, some for digital, but the overwhelming amount of the money was to go to television ads trying to target uh, white alleged swing voters. And so it's not any accident. You take that, and then you take the fact that the Democrats decided to return to having an all-white presidential ticket, looked at but then chose not to walk with Cory Booker as the vice presidential nominee. The Democratic turnout, the black voter turnout fell off the cliff. A smaller percentage of black people turned out to vote for Hillary Clinton than had turned out to vote for John Kerry in 2004. And so that neglect, that lack of investment, um, it, it's not surprising that we had the results that we did. Um, and yes, I do wish people had listened, and the world would be in a lot better place right now, sadly. Well, ironically, you sort of alluded to this, but I'll, I'll, I'll drill down just a little more. Uh, we've had five elections uh, this century. Uh, Democrats have won four of the, pop, uh, of the popular vote. But yet they're, they're below 500 in terms of general election victories. Do you see this as a trend? Uh, or is it an aberration? How, how do you see that going forward? Well, it's, it's important to also recognize, I mean, it's, it's important to recognize that um, both for historical purposes as well as strategic and tactical planning purposes that uh, George Bush stole the presidency in 2000. That he did not win uh, the popular vote, and they threw out thousands of ballots in Florida in a heavily Democratic area, and then they fast track, and then they stopped the recount, which was like a legally unprecedented uh, action. So there was a lot. There was they, they manipulated and worked the system to steal the White House in 2000. So that's important to hold in terms of understanding who won and who did not win and what the trends are. So you have that. And then it's easier for an incumbent to win re-election than for a non-incumbent. So that would play over to 2004. And it's equally important to appreciate that in terms of 2016. Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes than Donald Trump did. And so there's, there's such a uh, defensive and disempowered mindset among progressives and Democrats these days that they fail to recognize that we are, in fact, the majority. It's an organization that you know, I, cre- I, have, I created, Democracy in Color, we did a report called Return of the Majority. And so trying to reinstill the backbone in progressives and Democrats that we represent the majority of the country, we, that has manifested itself in, in elections, and there have been these, these uh, really two quirks in 2000, and then the enthusiasm of the uh, uh, white right wing in uh, 2016 to come out in large numbers, work with the FBI to um, you know leak information at strategic times and whatnot. So that should not obscure the fact that this is a this is there is a new American majority of people which is getting larger and larger every day. And that is how where we should be focusing our time, energy, and investments. Now, in terms of just the uh, methodology of, of the Democratic Party, 
do you or do you uh, even concern yourself with the use of superdelegates? Yeah, I don't. I'm not heavily focused on that. I mean, I don't. I don't think that that was the problem. Um, I know that there's some people who look at that, and you know, I'm somewhat agnostic as to that point, frankly. I mean, I think somewhat of somewhat of a larger problem is the um, uh, Democratic presidential primary calendar. You know, how is it in a party where 47 percent of the voters are people of color? that the first two states that do the winnowing are overwhelmingly white states. How is that reflective, and how is that good uh, practice and strategy to be able to surface candidates who can inspire and mobilize the voters necessary to win elections? And it's not. That's a much bigger problem to me. And you're referring to the Iowa caucus in New Hampshire primary, is that correct? Exactly. Uh, You know, Bob Kuttner at the American prospect earlier this year cited you in a piece uh, after you wrote one um, in reaction to your piece about the New York Times and that um, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing what he said but basically he put you in one part of a coalition saying reach out to people of color where there's another part of the Democratic coalition saying as you talk about is that let's go after the white working class but Kuttner sees you both as part of a false choice. I wondered if you wanted to respond to that charge. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, people like to try to say that a guy is like down on the white working class, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I have to be very clear. Well, two things. One is, I actually think I am the greatest uh, def- defender and champion of progressive working class people and progressive white working class people and progressive whites. And so there's very little attention uh, appreciation given to those people and those voters. Everyone keeps saying, oh, we have to go get the, the ones who support Trump. Um, and then also, I would love for there to be a lot more white working class support for Democrats. I'm all for that. But I've looked at the numbers, and I've done the empirical analysis mathematically and statistically, and I don't see the data where there's a much significant upside in that population at the same time as it's a shrinking sector of the electorate. Now, any smart investor and any smart business person wants to be in the growing markets. And so if we're going to allocate, elections are allocation of scarce resources of time and money. And I keep arguing for the priority, if you want to win, should be in the growing markets, which is the communities of color. What do you say, and I, I know, you, I know you've, you've written about this, that, that uh, you, you make the point, very salient, that, that we're talking about... S- little over 77,000 votes, and it would have been a reversal of fortune. I would probably add to that the problem that you initially addressed would still be present. It just wouldn't be as pronounced because you'd have a different outcome. But what do you say to that, what feels like an increasing number of people who have joined the most, the largest third party, which is the apathetic party? Uh, how, does, how do you reach out to them? That is what the priority should be in terms of the, the uh, and there was a recent piece in the New York Times and the Washington Post around how such a large percentage of those who did not vote or those who disappeared from voting were actually people of color in general and African Americans in particular. That needs to be the priority is how do you inspire those groupings, how do you attract them, and how do you get them to participate, not this obsession with how do we try to change the minds of people who are attracted to 
the uh, Trump's messages of you know flaming racial resentment. And so you do that by being offering big bold solutions to the fundamental problems in our country and not shying away and not um, disrespecting the intelligence and the maturity of the electorate. And so to even take what you know recently, uh, right? That's the whole uh, gun control piece and post Parkland shooting. We have not been able to move gun control in this country. Politics is, uh, the politicians are uh, afraid, and they do not believe that it is a winning proposition to be supportive of gun control. But when you have this outpouring and this outburst of you know young people, diverse you know marching and demanding and really compelling, putting forward a compelling moral argument and urgency. People respond, and so you need. We need to stop uh, watering down our politics to what we think that the most conservative um, alleged white swing voters, what I call the tyranny of the white uh, swing voter, um, will tolerate. And instead, we need to inspire people to a bigger, bolder, more courageous vision of a country based upon justice and equality. A country that that rather than uh, uh, promoting racial exclusion and rather that uh, moving towards benefiting and reestablishing uh, preferences for white people explicitly embraces the, the full multicultural and multiracial beauty of who our population actually is. How, how would you respond to those who say, uh, okay, Steve Phillips, I hear you, but, you know, Connor Lamb just won in one of the whitest districts in in the uh, in the country, congressional districts. How do you respond to, to to that? I'm sure you've heard that. Yeah, no, I heard that. Actually, I wrote a piece around that specific election for the nation um, last uh, in the past couple of weeks, which is I think one of the most important but then dangerous uh, myths that people are drawing. Even in these districts, and Colorado Lamb's example is a great example of this. Even in these districts that were uh, won by Trump, a lot of people voted against Trump. And that's what people are not appreciating. And so it's not that all these people who voted for Trump in Connor Lamb's district suddenly said, well, enough of that. Let me go over to the Democratic side. The people who voted for Trump did not turn out in as large numbers because they're more satisfied because they have their guy in the White House. The people who voted against Trump in the first place came back out again and voted and voted for Connor Lamb and put him into the uh, in, into Congress. So understanding that it's the anti-Trump voters are the ones who are going to be critical to taking back Congress is a fundamentally important um, element to understand if we're really going to to win Congress in 2018. Uh, I mean, this is sort of ironic because uh, anyone who reads your book um, they may question your thesis, but no one can 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 question question the analysis and the data that you cite. Uh, is the Democratic Party, in your view, too beholden to uh, focus group te- tested ideas? Uh, well, if they're focus grouping the wrong people, and so there's still way too much of, uh, obsession with trying to figure out how to change the minds of people who voted for Trump, rather than how to inspire people who are opposed to all the things Trump is talking about, but who are disengaged um, or who were uh, outvoted last time. So 
it's not about. I was just had a thing the other day for a Senate candidate or a congressional candidate um, from Kentucky is talking about. Well, you have to listen to the people, and I'm a gun owner, et cetera, et cetera. As if these folks who are drawn to Trump are persuadable, whereas the Democrats do not have not, frankly, done the math well enough to understand that the key to winning back Congress and also winning back the White House is to reassemble the Obama coalition, is to go back to the people who voted uh, against Trump, get them organized and inspired and back out to vote. That's the path to taking back our country, not going hat in hand to people who want to kick all the Mexicans out. Well, uh, you you, you mentioned reaching out to those voters. You also mentioned about the resources in the last campaign going largely to... um, uh, to, to white to white establishments and uh, uh, do you have to turn that around? I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if a guy from Harvard. I mean, nothing wrong with being a white guy from Harvard, but I don't know if a white guy from Harvard can inspire people, say, in South Central or East Oakland. I don't know how that works. Yes, and so that's one of the things that is clearly, clearly. I mean, essentially, uh, you know, in Chris Rock's latest uh, um, stand-up thing on Netflix, he talks about. We don't have people who are who are used to standing up to bullies, and that's how we got Trump. We did not have uh, political leaders and operatives who understood how to be effective in a racially explicit fight. They had, that's not how they came of age. They're not used to. They haven't been involved in, and that's because uh, every single organization on the Democratic and progressive side that had a budget of over $30 million was run by a white person, every single one of them. And so people who have come of age in the community fighting against racism, fighting against police brutality, fighting against anti-immigrant sentiment, were never put in positions of decision-making power and budgetary authority to be able to shape strategy and tactics and directions. That's somewhat starting to change, but that's what's going to have to change if we're going to be able to redirect the politics that we face within the country. Steve Phillips, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and author of Brown is the New White, which is now in paperback, and also a Cleveland Cavaliers fan who lives in the Bay Area. I, I didn't mean to out you like that, but I had I have no choice. I was a Cavs fan before LeBron James was born. I own that with pride. Uh, okay. Uh, so if I throw out the name Austin Carr, you know who I'm talking about, right? Uh, after, no, I used to uh, – Austin Carr gave me his – shoes after he was done using them. I wore them when I was playing basketball. Now, now, you know, we just dated ourselves on that. This is true. But Steve Phillips, thank you once again, sir, for being on The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. That was Steve Phillips from the Center for American Progress. Stay tuned for my closing remarks.
you've enjoyed this month of archive broadcast. I'll be back next week with a brand new season of The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments, questions, and suggestions for upcoming shows. To contact us, you can email at Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.